Amy Drake is a playwright dramatist selected for the Kilroy's List, Kennedy Center Playwrights Intensive, and the Yale Writers Workshop, member of the League of Professional Theater Women and a member of the Theater Makers Studio, former ambassador for the Dramatists Guild of America, a former board member of the International Center for Women Playwrights, winner of Audience Favorite with Shopper's Paradise in the New York Short Theater Festival at the Players Theater, Eyes Like Opaque Gems won Most Popular Play in the New York City MITF Short Play Lab. She has an MA in Liberal Studies in English, MS in Marketing and Communication. Education includes University of Cambridge Summer Program in Creative Writing, Graduate Studies in Literature at Reed Hall Paris, and Playwriting at the Kenyon College Summer Institute. You can find out more about Amy by visiting her website, amydrake.com. As well as being a member of the cast myself, we are also joined by cast members Kenneth Tang. Hi, um, I'm Kenneth. I'm doing my job with a really great part in Marion Myers and the others, and uh, just happy to be part of this cast. It's as much of a joy for me to like uh, watch everyone else work. It's a great play, so I, I really, I really am honored to like be a part of it. Jane Ann Halter. I'm Jane Ann Halter. I am playing Mrs. Helen Snook, the strongest woman I believe I've ever played. She's a fighter. She really does not give up. And so it's been a joy to tap into that in myself to bring that out a little bit more. And so I'm really excited for people to see this and to see her part of the story and just her strength throughout. Shannon Helene Barnes. I'm Shannon Her. I'm playing Fiora, an actor as well as a dancer, choreographer. And getting to know Fiora has been awesome. I love having the chance to play a character who's great. And Marco Malgiolio. I'm Marco Malgiolio, and I'm playing the character of James Snook, the former Olympian and teacher at uh, Ohio State University. Makes some unusual decisions along the way. Very, very interesting uh, character and probably one of the more deep characters that I've been able to portray for a long time. So it's a real honor to have been cast. Great challenge as an actor, so I'm really, I'm really honored to be doing it. Welcome, Amy Drake. Thank you. <clears throat> Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I I'm so thrilled that you're here. I think we all are. So yeah, we met at the table read. Um, yes. But looking at your your bio mm -hmm. it's um it's clear you've spent quite a lot of time in new england um the tri-state area and mm -hmm. you're based in ohio that's so right my question is um just just to kind of go way 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 back mm -hmm. when did art enter your life and was it always a focus on word the written word storytelling or did it start somewhere else and then evolve into that well, I wrote my first play when I was five years old and my kindergarten teacher loved it and the, we performed it in my class. And then I, I really didn't have any encouragement to do anything creative when I was growing up. And I had a long, boring business career and uh, in accounting. And then I transitioned into communications, which was far more interesting to me. And then I went back to school and got the two master's degrees. And uh, I've been uh, writing uh, for the theater since 2012. I, uh, I just had the inspiration one night uh, uh, in New York to write a play and it just came out of me. Three weeks later, it was accepted by a festival. 
and uh, I was off and running. So that's how I got back into it. I haven't uh, looked back. How does a five-year-old end up writing? Um, well, it was very rudimentary, um, more like um, a cartoon with a little dialogue. So my teacher could kind of understand where I was going with it. And it was just about um, two characters in my neighborhood having a conversation. And I, I don't even remember what that was, but I think my teacher found it very funny. I hope that there's a relative somewhere that has a copy of that. <laughs> if they, I don't know about that. <laughs> if they find it within the next six days, have them forward it to me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so is that pretty much it? Like from five years old on, you were just kind of fixated on this art form? Um, yes, decades elapsed before I got back to it. But yes, I'm, I've done a number of things in theater. <clears throat> I've directed, staged, managed uh, wardrobe costumes, but my heart really is in playwriting. Okay, so you had experience. Um, oftentimes when I'm on a set, uh, I'll ask, you know, the DP or the the sound guy, like, don't you ever want to be on this side of the camera? And, and the same with, with the stage, which is my true love. You know, stage managers make the magic happen, but I can't imagine, we actors, like, we can't imagine not having all the spotlight on us, all the, you know, the attention on us. Did you, you tried everything and you just felt a gravitational pull to writing? Yes, actually, I have done some acting. I've done some stage acting, a summer theater. And I have an agent uh, I work with. I've done um, TV commercials. And um, I was on a couple of episodes of a local series that won an Emmy Award, a regional Emmy. So um, I enjoy acting. I get a big kick out of it. But I can really throw myself into playwriting because I love the research aspect. Most of my plays, the full-length plays, are historical. I've written a number of shorter plays, too. But... Um, I spent, uh, well, I've worked in two museums and I spent five years working in an art museum, mostly doing research for exhibitions and uh, research was just fascinating to me and it's something I can really dig into and that lends itself well to writing historically based plays. I just stumbled upon a, a quote, I forget the guy's name, he's on the show Billions with Paul Giamatti. Mm. Uh, anybody know who I'm talking about? I don't watch that show, but Regina just chimed in at Damien Lewis on Billions. He was talking about how one of the reasons he loves uh, acting is because it's a lifelong course for autodidacts like myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you teach yourself constantly. And yeah. what you're talking about with the playwriting is how I feel about, about acting. I have to come up with backstories, mm -hmm. you know, in order to lean into things that are subtextual sometimes that you don't even really realize you're doing. Yeah. Um, I have directed some of my own work, but I really prefer having someone really experienced like Bobby do, uh, doing the directing of my plays because a good director pulls out so much more than I think I would myself directing it. So that's that's always very interesting to watch unfold. Yeah, and as the, the playwright, you have to sometimes just say it's it's not my baby anymore and mm -hmm. let it become something else sometimes right yeah you really do i i really uh, like to work collaboratively with actors and directors and <clears throat> techs and you know anyone working on my plays i i think 
you know, good people provide good input and, uh, to a creative whole. Completely agree. And, and just to reinforce, as I'm sure we're all in the, uh, you know, the Bobby Cassidy fan club here, it's, mm -hmm. he is, he is just a phenomenal director. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I play four small characters in your play, mm -hmm. yeah. um, mm -hmm. which is, you know, not the norm for me, but it's really been a treat because it's mm -hmm. so much fun to be these completely mm -hmm. different people. It's, it's just, mm -hmm. you know, like a wrestler goes from one end of the ring and bounces and goes back. That's what I feel like. It's, mm -hmm. it's so much fun. Good. Um, but yeah, so like the direction I get from him has been wonderful, but it's really in watching him direct the rest of the cast where I get to mm -hmm. see how good he really is. Yeah. And uh, you, that was one of my next questions is how did Bobby becoming the director? The show was originally supposed to go up in spring of 2020. And then just as rehearsals got underway, COVID hit. So during that time, um, that downtime, I had a chance to take another look at the script. And uh, Michael Segoras at the Players Theater was very enthusiastic about, as soon as we can get back up and rolling, we want to get your play up. And he and Brenda Bell have been enormously supportive throughout the whole process. But um, when I came back to it, I decided to um, consider other directors and a fresh perspective. And when I initially had the conversation with Bobby about the play, I felt like he really got it and that he could do really great things with it. And I was just so thrilled to have him on board. So I met through him through Michael. Okay. And also with a play like this, you know, there's, there's kind of a, I want to say unwritten, but it actually might be written somewhere. I don't know where you want to keep your, the number of people in your cast to like 11 or under maybe nine. Mm -hmm. um, that's out the window with this one. Yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. That was my choice. Okay. And I decided I needed all of those characters to tell this story properly. As a member of the cast, I, I would agree. Um, but I'm not a playwright, which is, which is a, another thing I wanted to bring up. So I'm, I started as a producer and then mm -hmm. I went into directing and finally found acting was what I was always supposed to do. Yeah. So I'm, I'm living my dream, honestly. Wonderful. The, thank you. But the, the two, there's two areas where I don't know that I will ever venture into mm -hmm. in the performers, you know, realm and that's stand-up comedy mm -hmm. um, because all my stand-up friends tell me you have to fail miserably for three years before you really get it. Mm -hmm. No, thanks. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm in a good place with acting. I'll just do that. And the other one is playwriting mm -hmm. because I simply don't have nine, 10, 11 people in my head. And, mm -hmm. and I know that you, you really have an affinity for, uh, for things that have actually happened. I do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But what, what about that part of playwriting do you have these people in your head or are they just facets of you? Or do you do what other playwrights have told me, which is you just get words out on paper and you let the actors figure out the rest? Um, for me, story is primary. So I kind of do things backwards from a lot of playwrights, from what I understand. Um, I put the story on the page that I want to tell in as many voices as I need to tell it. <clears throat> And then I um, 
hold it up to an eight sequence structure that I learned in playwriting to make sure I'm hitting all of the big points, the inciting incident and, and the subplot information and all that. And then I will do an outline afterward because a lot of people expect an outline, but it's just not something that comes to me first. And um, I do hear all those voices in my head as I progress through the story. And they're partly based on what I know about the real person. And sometimes that's very little working with in the historical realm. And then I kind of take that and, <coughs> and also base it on people that I know or are I'm acquainted with to kind of flesh out who the person would be as a fully developed, fully rounded person. You know, like I've, I started my memoirs a number of years ago, acting took over, they're still sitting somewhere. And that's another dimension of being a writer is that some writers say that they constantly can come up with things they can be doing other than writing. Is it just that you figured out what makes you tick and, and you have no problem going right into the writer's cave? It's what makes me tick. It's what gets me out of bed in the morning. And um, I take my writing career as seriously as I took my corporate career. So, um, <laughs> excuse me, I devote part of, of every day to writing, um, researching, contacting theaters, doing something to move my artistic career forward. Let's go back okay. again. So, um, yeah. Were all these things happening in tandem? Like you were a communications coordinator and you were writing for the stage for New York City? Um, or were you going to school at that time? How, what was going on there? Well, a lot of things did overlap um, at that time. During my last position in accounting, I knew that I didn't want to do that for the rest of myself. I the rest of my life. I'd done that for 10 years and I really wanted to do something more creative. So I picked up work writing for magazines and uh, culture, pop culture magazines. And I really enjoyed that. And um, so I was getting back more into going to theater and, and seeing theater. And I was very inspired by that and wanted to learn more about it. So my first job in theater was as a stage manager. And um, I was at that time, I was going back to school. I was pursuing the master's degrees. And um, so after that, one thing just led to another. So it, they were, it was kind of a stair-step thing, making the transition from um, corporate accounting. Then I was doing communications in IT. Then I was writing more creatively and doing interviews for magazines and and just one thing led into another phase of my career so before we get to how that turned into uh somewhere i can scream because you've written like a dozen or so mm -hmm. plays at this point right yeah i have so going from we'll, we'll forget about the five-year-old play for now okay yes but, <laughs> I still maintain I would accept that if you if someone finds it, I would love to put that. <laughs> okay. in the podcast. Um, but looking at your first, let's say, I don't know, not even mm -hmm. professional because you're first because you probably were writing um, mm -hmm. at an advanced level before you got published. So, yeah. mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. how would you say that your 
that your devotion to your art from the time that you were doing something that's, let's say, reputable. Yeah. Until now where it's off Broadway and you've, you've mm-hmm. you know, worked in Boston and, you know, mm-hmm. Connecticut. So, mm-hmm. Like, how would you say that, that, that your adeptness at your art has evolved and to what would you give that responsibility? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, when I realized that I was very serious about a career in theater and playwriting, I started looking for very good programs, um, workshops to go to, to really learn what it's about, um, get a, a solid foundation in playwriting without going back and getting an MFA at that point. <clears throat> and um, so that led me to the writing programs at uh, at the University of Cambridge and Kenyon, um, because I did have the writing skills. I developed writing for corporate IT. I had those solid skills, but I needed to really develop the creativity side of that and find out how plays are really structured and put together and the nuts and bolts of that. And I learned um, uh, a lot of very good basic skills on playwriting that I could build from in those programs. And I met my mentor, Clifford Lee Johnson III, um, when he was one of the guest faculty members at Kenyon. And uh, Lee Johnson had done a lot of work with the Manhattan Theater Club, reading scripts for them. And so I, uh, after the program, I flew to New York and he and I met and talked it through and he took me on as a client and and really uh, devoted a lot of time working with me to uh, improve my playwriting skills to a level where I could send work out and, and get feedback and get and get some things up on the stage. So um, that's how it really took off. Okay. And I want to ask you, when you say mentor, because uh, there are, I don't know, more more formal mentors in, um, especially like in the academic world. Uh-huh. When I, I have had two, two mentors in my life um, uh-huh. and they were just, you know, organic outgrowings of situations in my life and theirs that brought us to each other. Uh-huh. So, so when you say, when you talk about a mentor, what are you talking about? As someone who had real solid theater experience, I wasn't looking specifically for someone in the academic world, but someone who worked in the theater world who could bring me along to know what it was really like. And the other mentor I've had uh, was uh, Mark Bly, whom I met through the Kennedy Playwright Intensive program. And he worked with me on a script I had been developing on um, St. Margaret of Cortona, who uh, was a 13th century Italian saint whose body is incorruptible. She's still lying in state and miracles have been attributed to her. And um, so I, I wanted to I wanted to get some really good critical feedback on that. He worked with me on it. And then it was uh, put up as a reading by the League of Professional Theater Women last November. So, um, yeah, two fantastic mentors. So were they people that 
you were referred to or did someone say i'd like you to give this young lady some guidance i mean how how did they become part of your life i was impressed by the way they taught and the way they spoke about theater in the programs i was in both at the Kenyan uh, Summer Institute for Playwriting and the Kennedy Center Playwrights Intensive. And I just approached them directly and said, will you work with me? And uh, miraculously, they both agreed. So <laughs> that's so our your own, your own gumption, persistence. Yeah, I'm like that. <laughs> Knowing what you want and just saying this is what's going to happen now. Yep, pretty much. That's great. That's great. So... Fast forwarding a little bit, um, with with their guidance, eventually you're you're getting professionally published works, and I'm sure you continue to learn. We all do. Oh, oh, absolutely! There are books on playwriting that I read over and over again. I'm currently reading again, forward and backward, on the structure of plays and how action leads to more action, leads to more action, and and how how to keep a play moving. So I, I'm trying to, to keep those, uh, those basic structural things in mind as I, I approach a work as I'm writing it. So with regard to how that's affected or how Somewhere I Can Scream is affected by that, mm-hmm. because these were actual people, yeah. Um, one of the most fascinating things actually about this process, again, like the four bit characters I have don't really require all of the work that uh, that our three leads have here, but but I will find little documents or you shared books that were written uh-huh. about this. Yeah, um, I even saw I think it was on your it was either your playwrights Facebook page or the somewhere I can scream Facebook page. Uh, it was a little almost like a meme. It was like a a picture of what I think was actually Doctor Snook's face. Yeah. With the snook hook. And yeah. 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 Right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, did you did you stumble upon one of those books or a news clipping? How did that process initially began where you became aware of this? And at what point did you say, oh, my God, I have to tell this story? <laughs> well, I uh, I grew up in Columbus and uh, where the story takes place. I'd heard about this case from the time I was growing up that there was this this Olympian who killed a girl and there were all kinds of strange stories about their relationship and, and um, his um, tenure at Ohio state university as a professor of veterinary science. And I uh, picked up one of the books and read it and thought, this is really interesting. And then um, I read the other book, which led me to reading newspaper articles and um, so when I decided maybe this would be a good topic for a play, <clears throat> because there were so many twists and turns to the case and, and, and the characters were so complex, I talked to uh, Judge Teresa Liston, who was retiring at the time, but she was, uh, had compiled a, a large body of evidence about the case. And she graciously sat and talked with me for about three hours about uh, the intricacies of it. And I, I knew that there would be local interest in it. So I went ahead and wrote the play. I took the play to 
the Kenyon College Institute uh, for feedback and and um, critique on that and to hear it out some of it out loud, uh, which was enormously helpful. And then I did um, a local production of it, which uh, which was successful. We had we did it for a long weekend run and uh, were nearly sold out. So I knew there was still a great deal of interest here in the case, here in central Ohio. And there were people who came to the show whose grandparents knew somebody who was uh, one of the characters in the play and, and would say, did you know this? Did you know that about the case? And um, I thought, well, yeah, okay. There's a broader interest, human interest in it than just uh, a local murder case. So. Um, I spent some time just redeveloping the script and rewriting and rewriting. And um, it was my intention to bring it to New York when I felt it was ready. So that's how it got there. Okay. Yeah. And there's, I'm sure you probably put, well, I don't, I, I can't assume anything. I don't know you that well, but maybe you, okay. maybe you, there was quite a bit of pressure you put on yourself to make sure that it was refined before yep. it hit a New York audience. I, yeah, I really did. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but I wanted to, uh, I, for the sake of dramatic purpose, I had to um, combine some of the characters and the time frames just to, to pull it together and, and keep the pace going. And, you know, for example, the interrogation actually lasted somewhere between 19 and 22 hours. And Snook's legal team had a third man on it. His name was Ricketts, but um, he had suffered a stroke and he wasn't terribly involved with, um, with the case or the trial. So, um, yeah, I, I just had to make those decisions about what to, to put in and what to leave out. Yeah, so I, I took some dramatic license, but I, I remained very faithful to the events of the story. As an aside, um, are you a fan of Arthur Miller or no? Yeah. Okay, he's my favorite playwright. Uh, just yeah. because, mm -hmm. just because everything's on the page, and as an actor, yeah. how could mm -hmm. you possibly ask for more? Um, yeah, I you know, agree. He, uh, and the reason I, it makes me think of him is because in the Crucible, he mm -hmm. created characters that never existed, mm -hmm. um, and then he merged other characters together, mm -hmm. and some characters like. Uh, my favorite role I've ever, ever played was Reverend Hale. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. He goes through every single human emotion possible mm -hmm. in, in that span of time. And as an actor, that is that is heaven. So, yeah. mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that was one of the things I found out when doing my research was that mm -hmm. Reverend John Hale was, mm -hmm. of all the characters, was the one that was actually most historically accurate. Um, mm -hmm. And so much so that he wrote a whole book John Hale wrote a book about, basically, it was kind of like a subconscious thing of him trying to justify all the people he put to death. Yeah, um, uh, it was craziness. But um, wow. so when I think about when I think about playwriting and your artistic license, what you need to do to write a compelling story, in characters that weren't there, removing some, blending some together. Yeah, I, I do you enjoy that entire process, or is that more of a tedious part? <clears throat> That's um, more the fine tuning of it. Uh, the reporter character, Daniel Leitner, is fictitious. He's uh, 
he's a merging together of a number of reporters who are on the case. Uh, because the case, um, once the word got out, really captured the, the attention of the nation for a short while. And the New York Times and various papers across the country and reporters were sent in from everywhere to cover it. The, the courthouse was mobbed every day of the trial. There were people standing in line before 5 a.m. just to come in and try to get a glimpse of what was going on. And it was you know, 90 years ago this month that the, the trial happened. And it was a very hot summer like this one is. Of course, there was no air conditioning. The fans were going at full speed. The court brought in a second water cooler because people were passing out from the heat. So, um, yeah, I, it's, um, it's fascinating to me to learn what I can about the people who were actually involved. But it's, uh, it's more challenging to put together characters who I need to add in to tell the story. Right. Um, two more questions, and then I think we'll, uh, we'll we'll move on to some some other perspectives here. Maybe some other questions as well. Um, so, question number one is: How many different other works are currently on your creative writing table? Mm -hmm. And then, question number two is: Do you have a particular affinity for for any one character in Somewhere I Could Scream, or perhaps you have multiple? Um, yes, I think the most complex character, well, I'm going to answer number two first, is, um, is Helen Snook, the wife, because she really had her own agenda. I think she, um, she was very conscious, <coughs> excuse me, of her self-image. Um, she wore tailored suits. She wanted to uh, project the the image to the community of the perfect wife, perfect mother, perfect church-going member of her community. But I think she really wanted the state to go after him. She was she was angry. She wanted a divorce. She wanted to have nothing to do with him. She wanted to get him out of her life. In fact, I don't think she even wanted to marry him in the first place because her parents. Um, very strongly encouraged her to marry him because she was approaching the age of 30. Back in the 1920s, she would have been considered a spinster. They wanted grandchildren. They just wanted her to have a normal, settled life, what as they defined it. And um, But I think she enjoyed the independence of teaching. She went back to teaching after um, the trial and after Snook was put to death. She uh, actually moved to Hawaii with the daughter and taught at the school that Obama would later attend. Yeah, so she was, um, I don't know my favorite character, but I think she is the most interesting. I'm not sure if you're privy to this or not, but uh, my mind was blown when I found out that Jane Ann, uh, this was her first professional uh, production as an actor. She's she's doing such an amazing job, and uh, I mean, really, the the same can be said for the cast and crew as a whole. It's really something that everybody can be proud of. But but uh, you you struck gold with with the Mrs. Snook in this one, I believe. So yeah, oh, I'm thrilled. 
Yep. And then, um, yeah. yeah, how many other projects do you have on your plate? Um, well, uh, I was just um, accepted for a residency at another theater. So uh, thank you. Um, I'm working uh, on revising a play called Rife's Revolution, which was about uh, alternative cancer therapy in the 1920s. And um, the scientist who invented this um, machine that was based on uh, vibrational medicine <clears throat> um, and diagnosed uh, disease with a, uh, a high magnification microscope was um, hounded for decades by the AMA who wanted to put him out of business. And uh, so I'm going to spend the next nine months developing that play um, in the residency. And um, that's my, my primary uh, new project right now. Okay, that's exciting. <clears throat> yeah. So I know we have uh, another member of the cast with us as well. And I had a chance to introduce um, other people that were in the cast earlier on before the 930 hour. But mm -hmm. Kenneth Kang is with us who plays uh, Mr. Myers, Mr. Brundage, Bailiff, and the teenager Paul. Um, so he and I get to be, you know, teenagers for a brief moment in the play. Um, he, he's actually, uh, He's one of the actors that, well, interestingly enough, Kenneth was a replacement um, for for somebody else, and so he wasn't that far behind the ball. Um, I don't, I think we may have only had you guys can correct me, but I think we may have only had like a week or so of rehearsals at that point. But it, but I think everyone had a chance to really get familiar with the script before he did. And yeah, I mean his uh, Kenneth, you're you're. Uh, yeah, your handling of these characters and your evolution with them um, in that short period of time is really noticeable. Um, you know, at first witness, I was just like, hey, he's doing a fine job. But then after a few rehearsals, like he's really sinking into it. And he's also um, watching his development with Bobby is what showed me how good Bobby is. Uh, so there was a rehearsal where I watched Bobby with uh, Kenneth and Shannon on a, a scene they have together. And the whole, I don't know what it was, maybe 30 minutes. I might be overstretching it a little bit, but was just, it was just a joy. I mean, as someone who loves every single part of acting, everything around it, everything, I love, love what we do. Watching that rehearsal was just a real treat. And it showed just how capable all three of them really are. Hi, it's Regina. I was just curious. Um... What when is the actual production going up, and you know where can you buy tickets? Um, tell me more about that. July eighth through the twenty fifth, Thursdays through Sundays, Thursday, Fridays, and Saturdays at seven p.m. Sundays at at three o'clock yeah. Sunday. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so that's at the Players Theater in the Village. Yeah, thank you. Good I'll to know. I'll be there in the theater. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, Jane Ann, I believe you were chiming in there. Amy, I wanted to ask you earlier when you were speaking about how you sort of, you know, merge some characters together, combine traits, um, things like that. Yeah. I wanted to just ask, do you ever put like yourself 
into multiple characters or even one character? Like, do you dabble like your personality in there ever? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, if I see that opportunity and, um, I try to put myself in that character's shoes. Uh, yeah, some of my personality and my likes, dislikes, uh, opinions do wade into some of my characters. Any in this play that we might be? Um, Theora Hicks. I knew it. Mm, <laughs> well, mm, a little bit of Theora and a little bit of Helen because I, I could understand both of them. I admired Theora's um, strength of character and forging her own way in life, going to medical school in the 1920s. She was probably the only woman in her class. And um, Helen was, was strong in another way. And I could understand her wanting to uh, maintain her position in society so uh, yeah a little bit of both yeah absolutely one of the things that I, I was jesting because of you know how overtly sexual she is but uh it's very striking just how independent she was for the time period which was not normal um and so it kind of says like people are going to do what they're going to do and think what they're going to think it's a different thing to say that in 1930 than it is now um as any yeah, so did um feel some peer pressure because initially going into the relationship i don't think she had any intention of wanting to get married but as she got older moved into her mid-20s her roommates her classmates started teasing her about you know when are you going to get married and have a family that's going to pass you by you're going to be an old maid and <clears throat> so the pressure that she felt did start creeping into their relationship. Shannon, this experience of playing such an independent, um, outspoken, sexual, free spirit in an area where that was not normal, um, how's that been to take on? Um, it's been honestly a gift. I think I like to think I take a little bit of all my characters away with me after I play them. And I think I just have so much respect for how she really fights for autonomy and power until the end. Um, you know, that transition that you were both mentioning from where she, you know, her priorities do shift so much over the course of her relationship with Snook. And I look at that and I think about you know, seeking power over her life and control by going to business school, going to medical school, and then realizing like you get into these rooms with a bunch of men, it doesn't matter how educated or how smart you are, like you're still not going to have that power and like learning to find that power that, you know, she gets from being in a relationship with Snook and then the influence of love and societal pressure and all of that playing into the choices she makes, like, um, yeah, it's, I've loved getting to know her. Um, it's really been, really been a privilege. And before we get to Marco, uh, Shyman, did you have a question or a thought? Yes, um, I actually had a question, Amy. Um, you said you like to write about historical events and people. 
I was just wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your process, you know, like, how do you pull all of that together? And, you know, you know, Mm -hmm. what's the process like when you do that? I read um, a lot of nonfiction Western history, mostly, and some event or some person will just grab my attention and I want to learn more about them. So as I'm learning more about them, I will also read more about what was going on in the world around them at that time and what influenced them. So, excuse me, it's a building process of starting with something that just uh, uh, even um, a small event or a time period, and then it, it just grows from there. Oh, wow. Okay, thanks for sharing. Hmm? And Marco, who plays our lead character, please. Hi, yes, this is for Amy. I, I was just, I mean, so, you know, if, if you actually have the luxury to, to do it, I mean, as as an actor, I mean, I always like to explore mm-hmm. the, the real life places yeah. where the story took place. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, especially with film, I mean, I always like to go to the actual places where, not just like as a, like a yeah. tr- whatever, but I really like to immerse myself in it. And I actually, interesting because I, um, I had a, I took an audition um, not too long ago and uh, uh, it was actually, it was for a pilot that they were filming out in Columbus, Ohio. Oh. <laughs> it's be happening oh, wow. sometime in December. Yeah, I, I haven't heard from them yet, so I don't know, but I was like, oh, why couldn't it happen now? <laughs> the only reason why I'm mentioning that is because I like to really immerse myself in it. And I was just wondering, obviously, because you live yeah. in Columbus, and you're surrounded by where all this, you know, all this, all these events took place. I mean, do yeah. you actually, did you actually find yourself going out to the rifle range, which I understand is a police academy now? Um, I you, went out to a number of the sites. Yes. Yeah. Did you go to like the courthouse? Did you, I mean, it's, I, I, so I, I yeah. me, that's how I get into the world and I love doing that I just wanted to know as a player you do the exact same thing I do in fact I spent a lot of time at the cemetery where he's buried Mm -hmm. and just kind of absorbed that energy and it was peaceful and um I could just go out there and think about the case and I did visit some of the other sites his house has been torn down, as have some of the other locations, but I did go to the neighborhoods, walked around, felt the vibe, and uh, yeah, that that was a big part of my process. So this is in the 1920s, and a little research I did about the 1920s, like a lot of it's, you know, centered around New York City and like the sort of roaring, you know, mm-hmm. 20s culture that was happening with all these different uh, people and stuff uh, was there still a sort of like similar to today like a rural urban divide back then since this uh college or this campus uh in the play it takes place in ohio so i'd imagine it's like a you know mm-hmm. sort of a rural place so someone like theora hicks it mm-hmm. seems like sort of like you know a meteor that's just coming through this place and it's kind of like for for me like Marion myers it's like wow, like you don't meet people like that too often, you know, or at all. So mm-hmm. I, I, just, I was just curious because I just asked that because like he, he's also like a professor of agriculture. And I was just like, wow, okay, that's like, 
Columbus is not as rural as you might think, as a lot of people assume it is. It's not a farming town. It's a business town. Although um, <clears throat> Snook came from a farming background, South Lebanon, Ohio, which is very rural. But to him, coming to Columbus was the big city. Theora, on the other hand, um, Theora was raised in Queens. And, and when she wanted to go to medical school in Columbus, Ohio, her parents were thrilled because they thought she was going to a safe place. Uh, and um, <clears throat> so, yes, uh, the 20s did affect uh, Columbus. I'm sure there were speakeasies here. The clock restaurant mentioned in the play has been in business for decades. And uh, so there was a taste of, of that that racy nightlife here to some extent and certainly on a college campus. Yeah. I'm just actually curious. I mean, it is definitely something um, uh, that, uh, that you can, there's a, there's a lot of material obviously that you can use to, to really tell a story. Uh, do you think that this is something that, and I'm just throwing this out there. Do you think this is something that's better for the theater or do you think that you might actually have aspirations make a, uh, a screenplay out of it. And the only reason why I ask is because a lot of times mm -hmm. compare the screenplays to the theatrical productions, mm -hmm. it doesn't always translate or sometimes it's radically different because obviously when you're doing a movie version of it, you can take yourself out of the interior, like out of the theater and you can mm -hmm. go to different places. <laughs> and so the story actually does dramatically change. So do you find that actually in this play, do you find that there are things that you wish that you could have put in that you might find yourself putting in a screenplay or, you know, or vice versa? It's, it's, it's just something that I'm arbitrarily throwing out there because of, of the comparisons that I've made of, of plays that have been transferred you know, for to, the, to the, you know, to film or vice versa. I've already written the first draft of the screenplay as a matter of fact. Okay, that answers, um, yes. that answers my question. <laughs> yeah, the, the locations are so interesting, the time period. There's so much more that I could show in a film than I can put on the stage with this. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think it would translate well, and I do hope that I have that opportunity. I hope as well. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful to hear that. That's great. Let this thing have a, have the life it's deserved to have. The relationships, because there's, you know, between Theora and um, uh, James Snook, Dr. Snook, or, and Marion, did a lot of that just come, like, unconscious, the dialogue that comes out, because they, they really ring true in mm -hmm. so many ways, like the, the push and pull between, you know, mm -hmm. these uh, people in their respective re relationships. <clears throat> yes, um, it was... Uh, the dialogue came from life experiences and people I've known in various types of relationships. So uh, I wanted to put myself in their shoes and write dialogue that that I think would have been highly plausible given those situations. As it was, it, there was a lot of push and pull and power struggle going on between the three of them. I just want to thank everyone for their involvement in this project. I'm so thrilled to see it going up on the stage and having all of you involved. And it's just been a wonderful experience for me. And I just want to thank you so much for all the love and support. From Amy Drake's Somewhere I Can Scream 
The two characters being read are James H. Snook, male, age 46, professor and former Olympic athlete, played by Marco Malgiolio, and Theor Hicks, female, age 23 to 26, Snook's paramour, young, tall, physically fit, played by Shannon Helene Barnes. Scene 14, setting, sunset, by the side of the river road. Theora and Snook are seated in his car, a new midnight blue roadster parked. James, your new auto is the bee's knees. How could you afford it? Oh, for my patent and income from the magazine articles. I deserve a fancy auto to squire you around town. What a beautiful evening for a drive. Just look at that sunset. Well, it doesn't compare to you. Oh, James. You do know how to charm a girl. <laughs> long day. I could hardly keep my hands off you in the office. <sighs> what did you tell Helen you were doing tonight? Uh, yeah, that I was going to the club and I'd be home late. Hasn't she had it with her late nights? Well, she hardly seems to notice. She doesn't say much. Well, I'm all yours now. Snook and Theora get out of the car and soak in the evening air. They stretch, take a deep breath. James, I want you right now. You're in public? I don't care. Theora is inflamed with passion. She presses Snook against the car and rubs against him. I think I better get you home. I want you to get as hot for me as I am for you. I think you need to calm down. Not until I've had satisfaction. Theora reaches for the front of Snook's trousers. Not Has the scar healed? Yes, it's it's fine. When I so there's no chance with it No, I took care of it myself. It's a simple procedure. How could you do that? <laughs> Nerves of steel. Didn't Helen notice? No. no. She doesn't give me any attention like that. Well, I will. Theora reaches for Snook's crotch when a car is heard in the distance. Let's go somewhere more private, somewhere I can scream. Well, how about the rifle range? It should be deserted this time of evening. They get back into the car. Theora holds up her handbag. If it isn't, I can get in some target practice. Hey, hey, put the gun away. That's not a toy. I gave that to you for protection. I was only having fun. Oh, you are insane. Just wait till we get to the rifle range. We're going to have plenty of fun there. 